Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Fritz Eckert. Welcome back, Fritz. Good to be back. Thank you. So you are a recent contributor to a festschrift in honor of John Stevenson, one of our uh, online editors. It's entitled Servant of Christ's Church. And guys, if you haven't gotten a copy of this, um, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's really a gem of a volume. There's students as well as family members who were students, who are now pastors, and colleagues who have submitted to this project. Uh, some editors of our esteemed journal, like you, as well as Peterson. So I would really suggest that you guys go out and get this, some really great essays. Uh, we'll be going through a number of them, hopefully having the authors to interview. But today, I want to talk with you, Fritz, about your submission. Uh, you wrote about the image and likeness of God. And you bring up right away how we are accustomed in Lutheran circles to understanding that phrase, the image and likeness of God, simply in terms of the righteousness or the original righteousness that God gave to Adam, which was completely and utterly lost in the fall, and that our confessions really kind of pound this home. It seems, though, that you're advocating for perhaps a broader understanding of this so that as we move forward, as we think about what the image and likeness of God is, we are not just thinking about what the confessions state against their adversaries, but the fullness of what that phrase could could mean for us. So take us through your argument. What, what do we gain? And thus, uh, if we don't, what do we lose? If we just limit this phrase, the image of likeness of God, with regard to the creation of Adam, uh, to original righteousness. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, thanks for that intro. Uh, I was looking into this, oh, I think it goes back, what, about 10 years or so, maybe more. I did a, a one of those uh, sideshow things at the symposium um, on this topic. And then I, I had a manuscript that I produced and put together after that, and it was published in CTQ subsequently. So this is not my first foray into this. Um, but when that I was asked to contribute to this vest drift, I brought it up to the editors and they said, well, uh, John Stevenson is also a big fan of, of the, the view that I have. So I figured, well, he'd like it. So I, you know, that gave me uh, per, sort of permission to launch back into it again. And I did, I, I looked into some of the, some of the early church uh, interpretations of image and likeness and, and how that that was not so much reflected later on. And I don't blame the confessions. Uh, you can't really pin this on the confessions that that sense of like that a visible likeness to God was lost. It's just that in the confessions, the uh, 
controversy was over whether there was some residual righteousness in man. Mm-hmm. And they came out and said, no, absolutely not. And they, they referred to the utter loss of righteousness in the image of God when man fell into sin. And so that's, that's the take of the confessions. But I think beginning in the, uh, with maybe with the 1943 catechism, was that 1943? Uh, yeah. It was, it was more definitively stated that the image of God in man was utterly lost, image itself. And that was sort of repeated, although not quite as firmly, in the 1986 Catechism. Nathan Jastrom has done <clears throat> some work on this, which I referenced in one of the footnotes. Um, but he doesn't come down as clearly on the side of an image as a visible thing as I do. I mean, it started for me with just looking into the account in Genesis of the image and likeness of God. And, you know, that's, that's pretty clear likeness an image, a likeness, that's something you can, something tangible, something you can see. And I compared that to the, the new Testament references to Christ as the image of God. And I think, I thought, well, you know, I think there's something missing when we, when we um, go for this narrow definition, um, there's, there's a wider one that includes various physical and additional characteristics. Um, and in fact, Francis Pieper indicates that there, the, two diff, the two interpretations are both valid. But I think mm-hmm. that the emphasis has been placed in our circle so strongly on the loss of original righteousness that we, we sort of sort, short sell our understanding of what the image includes and i think that yeah. that's unfortunate so my my uh, article here goes into the meaning of the image of god and the likeness of god and how it was understood um not only biblically you can show it in, in scripture it's some cross references and things and just going into the terms the, the hebrew terms but also yeah. in the early church most notably in Irenaeus. Um, in the Cappadocian Fathers, um, and again, I would argue even in Luther, although it was it was kind of kind of began to be lost, I suggest, in the later of the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, although it's kind of hard to establish a trend when you're just view, looking at a few writers. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, the the clear notion of that the image of God was something visible. The image is you know an icon, something you see, something a likeness, an image, not only image, but image and likeness. Everywhere else in the scriptures, that is a reference to something that is tangible, that is seen, that can be touched. And of course, this gets right into finally the incarnation, mm-hmm. that when we see God in Christ, we are seeing God's image. His image is, is fulfilled finally in Christ. And that's, you know, that's, becomes much more exciting to me that uh, that the idea here is that in in the in the creation of Adam in the image of God you have already in the very f- opening chapters of Genesis a a sort of a prolepsis a preview a picture of of God himself that God will one day bear this image in himself i did some uh, some studying, I remember back when I did this at the seminary, into 
uh, various interpreters which utterly reject this idea, saying that, that God can't have an image because he's invisible. And in fact, uh, there, was, uh, there were some that had, had this weird view of, of God having this, this grotesque, they didn't use that word, but this, this somehow cosmic image off in the heavens somewhere that, that God is, this is what God looks like in the heavens. It sort of reminds me of that old Star Trek movie where they saw the face of God when they went to the edge of, edge of the universe or something. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. And uh, I think, oh, what was the name of those guys that had this view? Um, that he, well, the anthropo something or other. Um, but that's not what we're saying. And that's certainly not what Irenaeus was saying. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, he would not deny that God is invisible, but that this invisible God has an image that, that is a preview of his final incarnation, his fi- the fullness of time when God becomes flesh and we behold his glory, the glory as if the only begotten of the Father. This Johannine emphasis is, is critical, I think, for Irenaeus too, because Irenaeus was only, only two generations removed from John. I mean, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So I just think we're missing something critical if we don't yeah. expand our understanding of, of image. Sell them. So, so what I hear you saying is that we're missing a deeper understanding of Christology? Uh, well, yeah, you could say that. It depends. I mean, it, it's, I think, not necessarily because you can, you can get to a high Christology without this interpretation of image. Mm-hmm. But I think this certainly helps. I yeah. think it certainly it makes our, at the very least, our exegesis deficient. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and that's, that in itself is problematic, I'd say. Yeah. So is there, in your article, you um, point out the difference in the creation of Adam from the creation of all other things, where the other things are are spoken into existence by, um, according to their kinds, uh, whereas man is made in the image and likeness of God. So right. parse that out for us. Yeah, um, it's it's really striking if you if you read the account with this with this care taken to how the words are spoken. Everything is created after its kind, but not man. Um, and there's there's even a clear indication of what God meant when He said He created man in His image. I mean, He took clay, He fashioned it, He made it into an image, and and so that makes man stand out from all the rest of creation as God's representative in a very physical way, a very tangible way on earth. And I think it's helpful also to remember that when, when man was made in the image of God, God gave him dominion over all things mm-hmm. because God is the Lord, the dominus of all things. And then as a very, very helpful verse in um, in chapter two, where as soon as this happens, God brings the animals to man to name them. And then it says, whatsoever Adam named each creature, 
that was the name thereof. So Adam is has authority to name, to speak. That's part of what the image has to do with as well, I think. It's not just his appearance. I mean, after all, it's his righteousness too, as the confessions point out. But it's his it's his authority. It's it's the um, characteristics of man that the other creatures don't have. It's man's ability to reason and to speak. I often like to point out to people in Bible class and so forth that, that speech, for example, is not an attribute of man. It's an attribute of God. God said, let there be light, and there was light before anything was made. And none of the other creatures can speak, but man speaks. Man can talk. Mm-hmm. Man can reason in such a way that the other creatures don't. Um, and man can make things happen in, in, mm-hmm. by speaking. He can yeah. name the creatures, and that's their name. That's a, a richer, I think, much richer understanding of image of God than we are accustomed to grasping. So uh, the, the, fiat, so, the fiat of God is given to man. Yeah, yeah, man, God speaks and it is so. And now, in a lesser way, man speaks and it is so. And this is pointed out in Genesis. Whatever, whatever Adam said was so. I mean, clearly, man does not have the creative ability in his word that God did. Although I wonder, you know, this is, this is treacherous, I know. If there had not been a fall, or before the fall, did man's speech have a creative ability that it does not have now. I mean, we don't know. Um, but the fact that man continues to speak after the fall is an indication that the image of God was not altogether lost in man. This is another point that I think needs to be made. To say that the image of God was lost, was utterly lost, just because the righteousness of God was lost, I think misses the point of what the image of God is and how man still bears this image, if only in a marred and deficient way. And man still speaks, but now man is a liar. He speaks because the devil lied. One thing I could never figure out, to be quite frank, is the fact that the serpent can speak. God gives this this ability, this characteristic, if only temporarily, to the serpent. And then the serpent understands God's words to it and is cursed. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the way in which man falls is by uh, being deceived by another voice, another another speech, sermon. another sermon. Yeah, and there's something uh, deep and abiding about the characteristic of speech in itself and how lies. Uh, the false speech are the primeval, one of the primeval sins against God. To abuse the gift of speech in this way is to mm-hmm. uh, is to abuse God Himself. I know that Augustine had a lot to say about the um, what's so bad about lying in general. Uh, I hadn't looked at that for a long time, but Augustine makes a big case that. All kinds of all kinds of false speech, all kinds of lies are a sin against God. I don't think we'd go quite that far. I mean, you know, is it is it wrong to lie to Nazi soldiers that you're hiding people in your basement? Um, 
that kind of thing didn't occur to Augustine, I'm sure. But but Augustine's point, I think, is well taken. That that or false... is it wrong to lie to your wife when she asks you, "Does this make me look fat?" <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think Augustine wanted to get into those details, but but his point is valid. That speech is a is holy in itself. It is a it is a divine thing that man alone still has. Man can can speak. He's he's a liar. Man still looks like God, as as God will look, although his appearance is marred. You know, we get warts. Mm-hmm. We get we get things that mortality bring us. Um, and man becomes very ugly. In, in fact, what's interesting about the the image, the, the appearance of the image of man, of God in man, is that then Christ comes as the image of God, and he bears quite literally all the ugliness of mortality in his crucifixion. And that's precisely when Pilate says, behold the man, mm-hmm. because that is, that is also part and parcel of his image, of God's image, is the reflection of not only of his righteousness, but of his mercy and loving kindness. Mm-hmm. So here the image of God is, in a sense, perfectly portrayed because you see the depths of his, his compassion mm-hmm. in the marring, in the willful marring, allowing to be marred of his image. Yeah. Is there any sense in which the fatherhood of God helps on... Uh, unveil this, even in the Old Testament. I'm familiar with, you know, Exodus and Deuteronomy speaking of God as Father, and then after that, but not not much before. Is is that helpful in determining how to understand this image and likeness? Well, what's fascinating about the fatherhood of God is that it's very deeply veiled in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very hard to find it. You can find it, but it's 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 rare. And then, and it's just as rare as, of course, we know that, that God's name was not to be uttered aloud either. There are all kinds of elements in what God, in who God is or what God is that are veiled, that are, that are buried. But when we get to the New Testament, God's name becomes utterly clear. And the fact that God is Father, for the first time, becomes utterly clear. I mean, you've got in the Psalter even, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Well, he's not called a father there, but he's like a father. Mm-hmm. And there, there is clearly the, uh, the fact that Abraham is the father of a multitude. The, the notion of fatherhood is clearly very important to God, and God is like a father in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, we find out in the fullness of Revelation that God, in fact, is Father and has been eternally to the Son. And then the Son is the image of the Father. Yeah. You know, uh, there's the exchange between uh, Jesus and Philip. You know, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? Because Philip wanted to see the Father. And Jesus essentially says, well, you're looking at his image here. This is what the Father looks like. Look at me. Um, So... Uh, there's there's a lot of the unpacking of mystery. In fact, the yeah. entire unpacking of mystery in the coming of Christ in the flesh. And it's the duty then of the preacher and of the of the the pastor 
to to explain this fullness. It's not the same as in the Old Testament when when we groped, as it were, after the meaning of the mysteries that were buried. Now the mysteries are no longer buried, but it's 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 and it falls to us to explain to the best of our ability what they are. Yeah, uh, and that's what preaching is or ought to entail, and that has to do in part also with, um, in large part, with what the image of God means. And in fact, you could get into uh, what the dogmaticians would classify as sanctification here too, that to be bearers of the image of God is is a tremendous responsibility. We we look like Jesus, and since we do, we are obliged to behave like Jesus the best way mm. we can see fit to do it. It's never good enough. Yeah. Um, so behavior, appearance, and all of this is contained in image. You know, I, yeah. I would even you kinda, put even you kinda get that, into it. You kind of get that impression from our Lord in discussing with his interrogators in John, when John chapter 8, when he says, you are of your father, the devil, because he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You, you lie and you murder just like he does. Yeah, right. Uh, I also found in, in Irenaeus, I thought this was fascinating. When Irenaeus um, talks about the incarnation as the uh, coming of the image of God in the flesh, he, he goes also into saying that this, in a way, uh, makes man more precious to God, almost as if he wasn't this precious before, but now that that the Son, the eternal Son, who is one with the Father, is flesh. Human flesh takes on an added significance to God. That that it is, it is the, it is simply because it is flesh, beautiful to God, even in spite of the the Mars that it may have. And, in physical and in other ways. The fact that we are like God in that we are man is an attraction figure to God, that God is mm. now doubly into us, so to speak. Yeah. So what is the um, teaching of the ancient church? You go through Augustine, Irenaeus, um, you know, Aquinas, some of the uh, the other fathers, how do they view this? Well, of course, I mentioned Irenaeus. Um, and Irenaeus, interestingly, draws a distinction between image and likeness. And Augustine does that too. That, that uh, how does he put it? That the, you can have a likeness of an image and the image is the perfect thing. The likeness is not necessarily, but you can't do it the other way. You don't have an image of a likeness. So um, the likeness uh, is, is a likeness of its uh, prototype, of the, of the image. And so uh, he draws a distinction. Others do not do that. Like Tertullian, for example, who was uh, a young contemporary of Irenaeus. Um, he also saw the creation of man in the image of God as a foretelling of the incarnation. He doesn't distinguish between those two terms. And it's it's kind of up for grabs. Uh, the jury is out on whether we should take those terms as being 
synonymous, exegetical or not. Mm. Uh, but but uh, I think Thomas Aquinas also makes a big deal out of the difference between them, which is kind of hard to grasp. And I don't think it's quite as necessary to grasp as the fact that uh, that the image is the image of God is perfect in Christ. And this is, mm-hmm. I think, uniformly the the case in Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, the other Cappadocian um, father, his his older brother. Um, they're very clear on this, and it's and it's in a language and an interpretation that we are, if we stick merely to Lutheran sources, not familiar with. Yeah, uh, you know that uh, uh, that the image is formed of clay. It's uh, I've got a quote here from from Tertullian um, that uh, let's see. There was one in whose image God was making man, of course, in the image of the Son, who in the future, more certainly and more truly, would become man, who had already caused the man to be called his image, who was then going to be formed of clay, the image of truth and likeness to him. So image is wider even than an appearance. It is it's kind of the whole package. It's righteousness, yeah. it's truth, it's speech, it's characteristics or attributes, and preeminently, I would argue, what is what is beheld and seen. Mm-hmm. You know, this has to do, this is important when you get into sacramental theology, too, that, um, that Christ is truly present in the flesh, in the sacrament of the altar, but his image is not the image of beauty that we think of when we think of a physical image, the the beauty is veiled there, but it's something you something tangible nevertheless. Just as in the crucifixion, Christ's beauty is veiled, and yet it's a, a visible, tangible thing. I mean, there's a lot of mystery here that I don't think has been sufficiently plumbed mm. that we could spend time on. Um, Basil of so Caesarea do, is the other I was thinking of him. Yeah. yeah. So how does this affect how we think about ourselves then in light of kind of plumbing the depths of this mystery of being created in the image and likeness of God? What is this? Oh, I think, yeah. How does this change the way we think or act or dare I say feel? Yeah, well, there's there's all kinds of implications that I can think of offhand. I mean, there's there's honoring our bodies, you know, as you know, as as the apostle explicitly says, um, in temple of the Holy Spirit. But even conceptually, the fact that that my human flesh is the same as God's human flesh means that I have to treat it with honor. And for that matter, the flesh of others. I mean, this is why it's wrong to hurt people because mm-hmm. they're because of their flesh. It's not the same as you know killing a beast and eating it. But you dare not go into an into the uh, into defiling another person or, for that matter, your own flesh um, simply because you don't like what you what you see or what you get from the person. This yeah. also, uh, it also has implications for uh, uh, what happens to the body that dies. You know, there's debates about uh, cremation, which 
somehow or other has become acceptable in our churches. And I, I think that's abominable. I don't think we should allow it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I'm still dealing with that. And um, there are people who insist on being cremated. And, and I, I remind them that we're not just talking about, you know, making a funeral pyre and burning up, burning up the body, which in itself is bad enough. We're talking about the crushing of the bones and, and the terrible things that happen to the body, which is, which is the, there it's the image still. And if you look at mm -hmm. biblically speaking, this, this explains why the, the patriarchs and the Israelites always treated the bodies of their, of their dead ones with respect. And they didn't even have the full understanding of image in the, in, in the fact that it would become evident and apparent in, in Christ's becoming flesh. We have no excuse. Um, you know, the, the, more I, the more I look into this, the more appalled I become at, at the notion of cremation. Um, people do it for financial reasons generally, or, or sometimes, sometimes for theological ones. And in fact, in our day and age, with this transgenderism and the... Um, the push for all kinds of uh, uh, transgender pushing upon kids and so forth. It's all because mm -hmm. of a divorce of the essence of a person from his external characteristics, his body, his flesh. Yeah. It's a form of Gnosticism or Docetism, which is, of course, an early yeah. church heresy that did the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to resist that kind of thing uh, forcefully because... Um, it, it denies the fact that God has, had the word has become flesh. And in fact, I would argue when John said that the word became flesh, he was arguing against a similar strain. Um, because, because to say flesh is to utter in uh, platonic terms, in the terms of Plato, something that is, that is a mere reflection of the reality, which is behind it in the idea. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, the whole the whole notion of the, of the Gnostic universe was that that God is so far removed from from the earth, you know, he's he's like what sixteen sixteen gods away from the earth or something like that because he can't be touched or sullied with with growth the growth the grotesqueness of mere matter stuff. Um, this is inimical to the incarnation. And to, and to the revelation of God in Christ, that God became flesh. He wrapped himself in human flesh, and he is uh, as much man as he is God. And so it behooves us in, in all kinds of ways to, to resist and reject any notion that, that the body is not important. Uh, the body is critical to God, so it must also be critical to us. I mean, you could even go into... Uh, in a much in a much lesser way, I suppose the reason I've never really liked the idea of tattoos because mm. tattoos mar the body. I mean, it's it's yeah. a minor thing, I suppose, unless you got a you know like this Nadia Bolt Weber who full of tattoos or whatever that is. Yeah. I just think that's that's uh, grotesque. That is that is ruining the gift. That is making of of the gift of human flesh, the beauty of human flesh, into something that that you think you can make more beautiful somehow. Um, in fact, the reference to beauty, I also like to explore in this, in this connection. 
-hmm. there's a a verse in, uh, I think it's Psalm 27, where, where the psalmist wants to behold the beauty of the Lord. Well, how can you behold his beauty if he's invisible? What is the beauty of the Lord? Beauty has to do with something you see again. So yeah, I would I would argue that that's a it's also a a pre preview of how yeah. beautiful um, how beautiful the flesh becomes, especially in Christ. So I mean, those are just a few of the in implications um, of understanding the image of God in this way. Um, we mm -hmm. we do ourselves a great disservice when we when we lop off that that part of the image of God, if you can call it that. So you mentioned beauty uh, in Psalm 27 and, and, and Psalm 90. Right. In Exodus 28, uh, verses 2 and 40, uh, Moses records for us the Lord's words uh, when they are making the vestments for Aaron and his sons. And the Lord says, you are to make them for Aaron and his sons for beauty and for glory. Um, is there a sense then in which the vestments within the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and temple cultus was a image as well? Um, and, and, and then does that relate at all to the image or the vision that Zechariah gets in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he sees Joshua, the high priest, I don't know if that means anything, Joshua. Um, the high priest is given new vestments because his his have been defiled, or the, the, the priestly vestments have been defiled, and now he's been given pure vestments. Um, is there any relation to that? And then perhaps why we would incorporate vestments in our own services, our own worship, for beauty and for glory, relating to this image and likeness? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I, I like all that. I mean, the, <laughs> <laughs> where do you begin? I mean, the, the whole emphasis in the, the, the making of the, the tabernacle, the, the great meticulous detail about how, the, how Aaron's vestments are to be made. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we could, we could even say at this point that beauty is not merely in the eye of the beholder. You know, that's weird thing about beauty is that you know people will come out and say well one one man looks at beauty one way another man looks at the other another way i don't think that's really true i think there is something buried objectively in beauty that everyone at least should or implicitly does recognize i mean everybody knows you know that uh, that christ on the cross is not a picture of beauty in his appearance um, everybody knows what beauty is, you know, a landscape, a, uh, <clears throat> the, the Grand Canyon. Everybody, everybody thinks that's beautiful. It's, it's without exception. People know instinctively what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. So to say it's in the eye of the beholder, I think, is, is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, beauty is in God. And the fact that, um, I mean, you could, even, you could even say that, you know, we like to, we like to talk about all those different uh, species of fish that we never got to see until people went deep sea diving and so on. Why did God do that? Why did he make all those beautiful fish? Well, maybe because he just is beautiful. He likes to make beautiful things. That beautiful beauty is, in some respect, unquestionably objective. Mm -hmm. And we recognize beauty. And that 
too, I think, is a part and parcel of the image of God. I don't, I don't know if animals could be said to recognize beauty. You know, I don't think they care. Certainly, you know, dogs don't care when they go rummaging through the trash. Uh, but we care about what looks nice, what looks beautiful. Um, I suppose you could say that a peacock looks beautiful to the peahen, um, but it's hard to say exactly what's attracting her. Um, but it certainly looks beautiful to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that the recognition of beauty is also something divine that's that's buried in the human psyche, which is a part of the image of God in us. So, mm-hmm. oh my, yeah, and that's why it is it is false to get into some some things near and dear to the hearts of the editors of Godestines. It is it is false to say you can you can worship in any outward form or manifestation that you want to. I mean that that in itself. I would say, is a rejection of this idea that beauty is objective in God, that, that if we are going to have uh, the sacrament in our midst, if we, if we are given that privilege, then we, for our part, are well served to dress it up the best way we know how. Even though we're not given specific instructions for how to dress it up, that's, of course, one difference in the New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the the form or the the preview is is now done away because you have the reality and it's kind of it's kind of up to us to to do our very best to uh, to frame it to mm-hmm. uh, to give it the the uh, background and the uh, supporting things about it in the most beautiful way we know how so we. We sing beautiful music. We have beautiful vestments. We have beautiful churches. The, the most, the more beauty you can put in, the the more honor I think you're giving to the incarnate one. You know, this mm-hmm. also gets in tangentially to the importance of having a beautiful sanctuary. Yeah, it it matters that we've we've jettisoned those things in the name of uh, of uh, expediency or yeah. Of, pure practicalness especially i mean here we are in america we got all this money in the world and yet we spend it on fellowship halls (laughs) i think i think we've lost something the beautiful cathedrals in europe we don't see over here and i think that's to our great loss so that too i wonder if there's there's an an analogy here in some ways Uh, obviously it's not perfect so in the old testament it was very clear that the people of God had received specific instructions on giving, on tithing. Um, and and while in the New Testament, St. Paul says everything but 10%, right? You know, first yeah. fruits, proportional, um, generous, uh, all, all of those things. Certainly, I, I can't imagine any Christian making the statement that uh, b- because there is not a specific number put that we that that God has in mind, we should give less. So, is, is there a sense in which, at the same time, when we're looking at the 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 accoutrements along with the temple uh, and the temple itself, and and how it is to be structured, as well as beautified with vestments and such? Um, that we have a similar analogy that though we don't have a specific command to do those things, 
surely the 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 sentiment is not to do less yeah well i think um this i think this could also be said in in this way that uh the people of God are now given the opportunity to participate materially in the dressing up, if you will, of what we have, so that the vestments of the celebrant, the the uh, the paraments of the church, the beauty of the church in so many ways, in, in music, in appearance, and all those things, is the product of all the people that they have participated materially. In doing this, you know, in my own uh, in my own congregation, my people are used to hearing this. I've been here for for so long; they're used to hearing everything I say. They're used to hearing when when we want to talk about stewardship here. Every every year, they want me to write a letter, you know, sort of a stewardship letter. I'm I think in the minority here when I do not um, harangue the people for not giving enough. Mm. What I like to do, and I think what's been very successful, is show the people what they're donations have have done Mm -hmm. and remind them of their investment in this and what it's produced look the people here and the people here the active people in our church are glad to be active in it they're they're totally invested in it. i don't even have to tell them this i mean i sort of i sort of simply um i I sort of tell them well done in a way in a very crude way of putting it uh that that they're their work has has contributed. There's a little there's a little uh, rubric in the divine service that uh, I like to point out to them, and that is that we have a we have a subdeacon every Sunday here, an assist a lay assistant to my left. And when I elevate the elements, the the rubric it's it's an ancient rubric is for him to touch the bottom, the hem of my chasuble. And that's a visible way of subtly reminding people that they're helping, as it were, Moses lift up his hands so that the victory would be would be ours. Um, they're they're involved in this. There's this is kind of partly the priestly ingredient in the ministry that the that the the pastor, the celebrant, is 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 doing these things on behalf of Christ certainly, but he's also doing them on behalf of all the people. Because they're with him here, they say "Amen" to his words, uh, and they're robust in their singing. If they understand this, they they're part of it, um, and so so that I think also uh, has to do with uh, why why tithing is not required. It's more uh, the, the the giving of the people is is an opportunity, just as you know coming to church. I just I just wrote about this for our newsletter. It's not so much, and in fact, I put the put it in the. I think I put it in the blog too. That it's not so much that you have to go; it's that you get to go. This is an opportunity, mm-hmm. and so um, I think that's the uh, better way to look at it. Yeah. So, just kind of wrapping up, um, what is what is the image and likeness of God? The best that you can describe it. Well, uh, it is the fact that, that God has an image at all in itself means that God, from the beginning, intended to join himself to man. Because 
going back now to the way in which man was made. God took clay and formed it and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. These details all have to do with the fashioning of man as a representative. And I use that word, and there's probably a better word than representative, an ambassador of God himself in the earth. You know, it's kind of like when, when Jesus sends out his apostles and says, whoever hears you, hears me. Well, in a way, when, when Adam is made on earth, all the beasts, all the creatures, everything um, reacts as if to God by the leadership and authority and lordship of man. Mm. Um, so I think uh, that's where we ought to begin with, with an understanding of the yeah. image of God. And this is what we're leading to. Yeah. In the end, man is on the throne with God, just as in the ascension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man has is dominus. He is Lord of all creation in unity, quite tightly bound and permanent and, and eternal with his creator, who is from eternity Lord and master. Now man is, is with him as one. And of course, this is not to say that that we are all going to be God himself. But there's a mysterious way mm-hmm. in which we almost are. And I say almost, yeah. you know, there's, there's that ancient saying, God became man, that man might become God. Well, we don't want to put ourselves on an equal footing with the Father, of course. For that matter, neither did Christ, who is one with the Father. Um, but there is a mysterious sense in which our unity with God, our physical unity with God will be evident in all created things in our in our mastery over all created things I, I think yeah. briefly of the um, the wonderful commentary of Luther on Genesis about what Adam was like before creation I know Peterson doesn't like that but I really do the uh, you know, <laughs> that, that man the, the eyes of an eagle the eyes of a hawk and he yeah. could play with the beast says one plays with puppies and so on. I, I think there's something to that. Uh, that does bring something up for me. When Genesis says that God and Adam and Eve walked together in the garden of the cool of the day, it sounds like it's a repeated thing, something that happened often. Well, wait. What did Adam cool, see? I don't know about that. The cool of the day, there shouldn't be any cool. I mean, I think the fact that there's cool in the day means there's something wrong. Oh. So you're saying that they, this didn't happen often? No, I think that when he walked, when he walked in the garden, that happened often. Yes, but yes. the fact that the day is cool, there, there's something wrong there. Okay, but I digress. My point I is, guess. when they walked, yeah. yeah, when when they walked in the garden, what did Adam see? Yeah, right. Well, when it, when when people throughout the Old Testament saw the angel of the Lord, what did they see? Mm-hmm. They saw Christ in pre-incarnate. Um, God walking in the garden, pre-incarnate Christ, sure. They saw they saw an image. They saw, I mean, even a ghost, in a sense, is an image. I mean, it's not the full, the full bore image. It's not tangible, but it's something you can see. So, yeah, so, from the very beginning. So did, Adam, so did Adam see in a mirror dimly? Well, certainly not as dimly as we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say, of course, what, what it was like to be Adam 
before the fall, except what's revealed. I like yeah. to point out that when Eve was made, Adam exulted and rejoiced. This at last. I mean, he is, he is in ecstasy here. And that, I would suggest, also reflects, in a way, God's, I hate to say it this way because it sounds almost sacrilegious, but God has a sense of his own ecstasy over the creation of man. To put it very crudely, God is thrilled about what he's made. You know, when we make something, that really excites us. Well, think of God. When he made man, he was, he was beside himself, we could even say crudely, with excitement. Mm-hmm. Because now, as Adam said, this at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. God, in a way, must have said or thought in his eternal heart, this at last is my image, in my image. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at myself here. And God is the perfection of beauty. So image has to do with all of that, I would say. And mm-hmm. Yeah, we're missing something if we don't expand our knowledge of what that's supposed to mean, I would say, definitely. Well, thank you, Fritz, for getting this conversation rolling with your essay, um, not only in the Festschrift honoring Stevenson, servant of Christ Church, uh, but also in all the other various ways in which you have made these things known over the past. So thank you for your insight uh, and your contribution. That's been my pleasure. And speaking of that Festschrift, there are some real gems in there. So I I concur with your recommendation to get it because it's got some good stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jason.